Welcome into another episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in freight. Hosted by me, Blythe Brumleave. And on this show, we're telling stories about how your favorite stuff and people make it from point A to B. Now, in addition to being a creator in freight, I'm also the founder of Digital Dispatch, helping companies to build a better website from the ground up. We host more than 30 websites all within the freight space. So for more info about me and our product or sponsorship offerings, be sure to visit everythingislogistics.com. In today's episode, we're pulling together a recent appearance from FreightWaves Now, which if you work in logistics, you likely know who they are, but if not, FreightWaves is the leading daily news program focusing on the top stories in and around freight and logistics. So be sure to check them out over at FreightWaves TV for more stories like this and my own future appearances on the program happening every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that's where I cover the intersection of digital media and the attention economy in logistics. Now that I've got all that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. Thank you for being here. And talk to us a little bit about how to kind of just sift through the bullcrap on social media, not only just scams, but also just the general kind of poo-poo of social media. (laughs) Well, it's sort of encapsulating with all of the internet, I think, right now, especially when there's a story that dropped. um, It was late last week that iHeartRadio, and this was a story by Bloomberg, and it iHeartRadio essentially has been gaming the system when it comes to their podcast advertisements or their podcast downloads. And so it just shines a light on the falsehood of a lot of numbers that you see out there. Because what was happening is that, you know, when you're in a kind of one of those crappy mobile games where you have to watch an ad before you can continue playing the free game. Well, iHeartRadio was purchasing audio ads on those platforms and playing their podcasts on that 10 second uh, app download. And so what happens is that that download counts as a podcast play because you listen to it technically for 10 seconds. And so what iHeartRadio is doing is that they're constantly at the top of the charts when it comes to podcasting and things like that. And I've always wondered why. Well, now we kind of have some insight into how they are essentially gaming the system into making people think that their podcasts are the most popular on the planet, that they're the number one provider. And it was essentially them just buying up advertisement, advertising and then just playing their podcast audio feeds in these ads. So it just led to a story that I've kind of been thinking on for a while on how to make a better experience for yourself online, because we can't really rely on the companies to do that. They're trying to game you into staying on their platform or staying on their channel for as long as possible. So how do you sort of weed through the noise? And it really becomes an onus on yourself and being able to recognize a story when you see it. And if it makes you mad to recognize immediately that that was by design, that you are dealing with these super powered algorithms that are supercomputers that are essentially designed for maximum attention grabbing efficiency in order to keep you on that platform for as long as possible so they can serve you up as many ads as possible in order to return a profit on your experience on their platform. So recognizing that that's the business model and you are the product, then you can sort of better navigate a lot of these different channels. There's also a growing amount of resources, apps, and browser plugins that will allow you to set a focus mode. I mean, right now on the iPhone, you can set that, you can set time limits on each one of the apps that you access. You can also use, you know, different Chrome browsers or different, uh, you know, other web browsers 
that will be able to block the amount of time or set aside a set amount of time in order to spend all these different attention seeking platforms. And it's really just, it's sort of like that mental housekeeping is like the digital housekeeping that everybody needs to start practicing more and more. And why this is absolutely wild. So can you break down why uh, iHeartRadio would do something like this? Because in turn, you so show yourself as being so popular, so many streams, so many listens. Then in turn, you can charge a little bit more for ads. Is that right? That's exactly right. So basically, the, the the monetization model with podcasts right now is that you're paid based on the amount of downloads that your podcast receives. And when you uh, attribute a download, what does that download look like? Well, for a lot of metrics and for a lot of people, 10 seconds is all that you really need to listen to. And for a lot of shows, 10 seconds is the intro. And then you get into the meat of the show. So those aren't real down or those aren't real numbers to, in order to drive any kind of value from. So it kind of, from an attention standpoint, it's how do we spend our time online? And then how do companies knowing that these sort of gamification exists, how can we better combat uh, and, and be able to look at our data of what we're seeing online and make, make better business decisions. And then in addition, make better personal decisions. So yeah, iHeart was pretty much just taking, you know, the ad networks that exist on all of these different sort of meet free mobile games. And they were playing a podcast audio for 10 seconds. That's all it requires. And that juices their numbers, which then they can go to their advertiser partners and say, well, these podcasts can get, you know, X amount of downloads. A lot of their, their podcasts and their top ranking down downloads, haven't published episodes in months, sometimes years based on that Bloomberg report. It was pretty wild to see. So with this, Blythe, is there any type of onus on the platform that they're using to kind of police police this type of behavior at all? Like I know like on Spotify or on Apple Music, is there any type of limitation that the platform itself will set on these podcasts saying, you know what, hey, no, you have to actually have something legitimate. You have to be servicing the people who are coming to look for your type of content. Or are they just so removed from the actual content publishing that they don't have to do anything about it? So it's kind of twofold. They kind of play in both areas. So Spotify in particular, you can't leave a review for a podcast until you've listened to, I think, at least three episodes. So it's not like, you know, somebody has never listened to an episode can go to your Apple podcast and then leave a review, which currently exists in that platform. But on Spotify, you do have to listen to a few different episodes in order to be allowed to leave a review. But then on the flip side, Spotify is also caught in a lot of these fake streamers where you can go to YouTube right now and you can look for different um tools and you can download them pretty affordably. And what happens is that you download these different tools and they will set up various different Spotify accounts in order to stream a certain artist. So basically, you know, like a new artist or an upcoming artist will go to these bots and they'll download this software and they will set up to where they have 20 different fake Spotify accounts and it will juice your own numbers in the stream. So then it signifies to Spotify or maybe other people that, hey, this song is catching on. It's starting to trend. And it was all based on bot activity. So Spotify has a couple different variations where on one side of it, they're trying to, you know, authenticate their reviews. But then on the other side, they're kind of looking past, you know, some of these different, you know, I guess, nefarious actors of how they're juicing their own numbers, which exists in a variety of different ways. It's not just, you know, juicing your own streaming numbers. But then there are also just audio podcasts in general that last for eight hours. And all it is, is just the rain outside just playing on a loop over and over again. And because they get so many streams, they get that ad revenue from Spotify and all parties are happy. So what's the incentive to fix it? 
Well, I think you're blowing my mind right now because it seems like there is just so much going on with inflation of, you know, not just regular inflation, but inflation of these numbers as well. It also seems like, you know, there's this big trend on really trying to push your weight around, especially on platforms like YouTube, to make sure you can get on something like the trending page in order to really monetize that platform as well. Um, when we're looking at different platforms, really being able to manipulate a system here, do you see this really kind of stemming from, you know, I, I would think so much, almost some from the music industry, where you see like there's this now big movement from really how to classify a stream and how to monetize that. And really it kind of seems like this is almost mimicking that as well when, you know, before you could just kind of say, hey, I've sold this many records. Now, how many listens is an actual record or how many listens of a song is an actual purchase? I think it was actually T-Pain that recently released his breakdown of where he makes the most money. And it's something ridiculous, like eight cents per 100 streams that he gets from Spotify. And he gets a little bit more, you know, I think from Apple and I think from YouTube, but it really just, it sort of muddies the water for everybody on what does success look like? And ultimately for artists, it's how many concert tickets can you sell and how many people can you get to a live venue, you know, for on the business side of things, which business usually falls follows in entertainment's footsteps, probably about five or 10 years after, you know, entertainment industry makes waves or starts a new trend or starts a new tactic, such as, you know, streaming, you know, false numbers. But from a business standpoint, where you can look for a lot of these different, you know, signals that you're doing something right, because there is so much gamification that's going on is not to worry yourself about the vanity metrics, worry about the right metrics. And where we're, we're the right metrics, meaning how many people are coming to your website? How many, is that trending up or down? How many people are coming to a top landing page? Is that trending up or down? Are, are your form fills on your website? Is that trending up or down from those form fills? Are you actually getting customers from those leads that eventually evolve into good relationships? So those are the kind of signals that you can tell from a business lens that, hey, we're doing something right in the content marketing world. But just knowing and being aware that these other things exist, it's up to you to really look at the numbers and try to disseminate if they're accurate or not. A good example is on YouTube. You can go and you can buy thousands of views on YouTube, but looking at that video, does it have a lot of, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down? You can't really see thumbs down anymore. Um, but does it have a lot of comments? Does it look, does a hundred thousand views look legitimate? Um, so these are, you know, just little ways that you can tell if something is authentic or not, but then also just checking yourself and knowing that not everything you see is going to be true online that's not earth shattering to anybody out there, but being better about disseminating what is really true and what is the incentive behind it. Because if there's an incentive behind it, then, you know, there's going to be people that are going to try to game that system. And we're talking about cold calling. I know Anthony said that something he despises to do. I have no problem with a cold call. I'll do it. I'll do as many of them as I need. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I, I'm kind of with Anthony here. I hate cold calling. It's when I worked at a 3PL, it was I swore that I would never, ever become a freight broker because that's all they pretty much did. So I kind of have a soft spot for the people who do have to do that for a living because it is just tedious every single day and you're getting a lot of rejection. But there's a lot of questions going on on if cold calling is still something that is something you should be doing and you should be prioritizing in 2022 and beyond. 
Blythe, it seems like the more I get to hear from you, the more I realized and just accepted that you excel and are way better at all the stuff that just brings me anxiety and I dread doing. But when you're looking at cold calling and emailing, there is a right way to go about it and a wrong way to just go about it. What's a way to just be more efficient around doing cold calls? Sure. So, so the logistics marketing advisors, which comes out with an annual study each year, asking folks how or asking shippers how they would prefer to be contacted. And the overwhelming majority of them, close to 80% said that they want a cold email. They do not want a cold call. And so I took this scenario and I took this data. We've talked about it on, on episodes of Cyberly, but I also went to the subreddit freight brokers, which if folks who, who don't know, you know, Reddit is kind of like a online forum, online community to ask questions share insight, things like that. So there is a freight broker community, a very lively one over on Reddit. And so I asked them what their sales tactics were within the industry. And most of them said that all they do is just pound the phones. They just pound the phones every day. That's typically how they start. When they come into this industry, they they sit down at a desk and they're handed a book of cold leads and they're told you just pound the phones. And so with a lot of modern strategy, though, they're trying to figure out how they can incorporate marketing into their strategy, how they can incorporate cold emailing and cold calling without it being, uh, you know, just such a system of sequences. And that's where a lot of the frustration from the shipper side of things comes from is that they're treated as a number. They're treated, you know, a a common tactic for a lot of freight brokers is just to go to Zoom Info and to find job listing or to find job titles, download a list of, you know, a thousand, five thousand people, and then just send them all the same email and hope that it works. That is the exact opposite of what you should be doing and what a lot of these shippers have said that they do not want. They don't want to be treated as just a number. And so the right way to do this is the tedious way to do this is to figure out what your ICP is, your ideal customer profile, and then to go through and search what businesses match your ideal customer profile. Do research on those specific businesses and then email them and cold call them with that specific information. So you can't automate it. You can't you know, create one sequence and send it out to a thousand people and hope that it does well. Well, you have to take that mindset and instead do research on a case-by-case basis on if that customer is a good fit for you so you're not wasting their time, you're not wasting your your own time, and that you're ultimately trying to develop a relationship with these people. And most of the people on the Freight Brokers subreddit said that they do this research and then they do a cold email and then they do a cold call immediately right after they send the cold email. So that seems to be a tactic that is working in sort of the modern day sense. You know, it's interesting because at FreightWaves, we get so many emails that just come into our general email box for, for anything. We even get some people that are looking for routes. Like, do you have trucks for us? And we're like, no, we're not We're not that kind of company. But it's, tr- it's true because I just go past all of them. If I see my name in there somewhere, if I somehow catch that my name has been mentioned or there's something that sounds just a little more personal, I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't a robot. Maybe this is somebody who actually might have something for me and I end up reading it and I'm like, oh, I actually I could use this. Maybe I couldn't, you know, all the above. And it's I think it really does work. Right. 
And, and that's a, a really great point that you bring up because on there was a little bit of a ruckus caused on LinkedIn. It was a, a little over a week ago that a sales leader had posted that he was creating an audit. It was, you know, it was a satire post, but he said, you know, are you tired of getting these cold emails from freight brokers? What you should do is set up a fake email and set up your own automated sequence to reply to those automated emails. And that way you don't have to deal with them, you know, in, you know, flooding your inbox. And there were a lot of freight broker, you know, sales agents, people like that commenting on the post saying, why are you wasting our time? You're taking food off of our plates. You are, they were very, very upset. You know, overwhelming majority of comments were very upset that a sales leader would even mention this, but it's kind of the, the turning the tables on, on the sales folks who are using that same sort of automation where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, where you're just mass emailing a bunch of people. But then on the flip side, if it's done to the freight broker, they're like, wait, 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 you're wasting our time now. And it's like, well, it, you know, some of this automation software is great and it could be easy for you, but you have to always ask yourself before you reach out to somebody, before you flood their own inbox, is this email worthwhile to the person I'm trying to send it to? Is it something that I would want to get? Is it valuable? Is it personalized to them? All of those things matter in order to ultimately get the goal that you want. And that's somebody to book a meeting with you or eventually become a customer. It's, it's a lot of this automation software that exists right now. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you figure out where technology plays a role in your own sales process. And I think that that's the, the message that that LinkedIn post was trying to get across. And talking about those comments of, of folks saying, you know, you're taking the food off of our table. How much food are you really taking if what your tactic is isn't working? It, you're not doing what is getting you the food to the table anyways? I don't know. Maybe that's a bit harsh to say. I, I'm just... I think it would be 100%. interesting to see those numbers of how many cold calls, you know, unpersonalized cold calls are working versus maybe those more personalized email addresses versus, you know, doing all the above and seeing what you get out of it. 100%. I mean, it really comes down to, you know, the, the business world has changed so much just within the last couple of years. Buyers are more aware of the tactics. They're more aware of these, you know, sort of HubSpot email sequences and other email marketing platform sequences that are set up. And they make it easy for the sales reps to get involved with inbound marketing and get to that that philosophy of, of reaching people who want to be reached ideally by your company. And so that in and of itself is a good thing, but we need to take it up a notch to where personalization matters. And I think that Hub, HubSpot would probably echo that statement as well. And, and taking the time to do the due diligence, to do the research on the people you're trying to do business with, instead of just a spray and pray. There are other ways that sales reps are you know, being a little bit more creative, whether you're making video content for LinkedIn, or there's another example. I ha actually had a client yesterday tell me that a sales rep booked a meeting on his calendar just to pitch his product. So it was, he got on the sales call and the guy, you know, he was going through his sales process. And then the guy who booked the meeting started pitching his product. So the, the customer goes into it thinking that he's going to be pitching his product, but then it's like the reverse situation where the other sales rep is, is trying to pitch his product, has no interest in doing business with them outside of just requesting for money. So there are lots of different strategies that are going on and you could call them quote unquote strategies, but it's, it's modern 
everyday tools that we're using today, but it still boils down to the simple fact of you really need to become educated on your customer, not just on a one-time basis, on an ongoing basis, and then prove to that over and over again that you can anticipate their needs and ultimately fulfill their needs. That's right, Blythe. Sounds like modern solutions to modern problems. When we're looking at this segment, do you see anywhere to have personal branding or personal marketing really fitting into some of these email efforts? 100%. That's actually what I would advocate for because that's, but it's going to be harder for a lot of sales folks out there. A lot of people don't like being on camera. A lot of people don't want to start a podcast. A lot of people don't want to take these extra steps. They just want to do what has been comfortable for them for years. And that's get a lead list, pound the phones, create email lists. But if you take it that extra step and use some of your conversations that you're having, you know, everybody is having a conversation with sales leads or sales prospects and things like that over over Zoom and over, you know, all these different software capabilities, what you could do is take that content and then edit out what the customer is, the personal inf- information by, uh, about that customer. And then you can take your responses to their questions and you can use that as content on social media. And then you build that over time, post four or five times a week using that strategy of a couple minute long clips. And then you build that affinity over time. So then that way, when you do cold email, quote quote, cold email someone who might be interested in your products or services, they likely have already been connected with you on social media and they've already seen your content. So it's kind of like that warm intro, that warm open. So a cold call or a cold email doesn't feel like it's cold because they've gotten to know you through your content over a series of months. And when they do become ready to buy, they think of you first. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast by Digital Dispatch, where we help your company build a better website. And speaking of my company, I founded it back in 2018, but we recently streamlined our website services plans. So if you want to check out how we can help you and your marketing team build a better website and connect those ROI goals, then go visit digitaldispatch.io. You can also check out past episodes of this show and every show by hitting up the resources page on digitaldispatch.io or on everythingislogistics.com. I do some freelance content projects for select clients. And if you liked this show, then you might like some of the other content projects that I've worked on, like Cyberly, Maritime Means, and more. But until next time, I'm Blake Brumleave, and I will see you real soon. Go Jags!